from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. A few weeks ago, St. Louis writer Jeanette Cooperman published an essay that really hit home. Not with a whimper, but with a bang, appeared in Washington University's Common Reader. In the piece, Jeanette traces the way today's humans are learning to, as she puts it, move in and out of doom. She set out to probe our dire predictions of the way the world ends. I kept hearing people, including me, make wisecracks about the world is ending, the end of the world, the apocalypse. You know, it was just so much in the air, so much sense of doom and catastrophe and things have never been this bad. And I was at a meeting uh, planning a literary award, and we were talking about next spring, and somebody said, oh, well, I can't imagine things will be better by then. And we were making three levels of contingency plans, and we all laughed because, yeah, uh, blithe optimism seems absurd these days. So I wondered what all this is doing to us. When we read Jeanette's essay, we felt that it deserved a life beyond the Internet, and she kindly agreed to share an abridged version on our airwaves. She begins the piece with a quotation from novelist Andrew Sean Greer. Don't little children awaken one morning and told, now you're five. Don't they wail at the universe's descent into chaos, Greer writes. The sun slowly dying, the spiral arms spreading, the molecules drifting apart second by second toward our inevitable heat death. Shouldn't we all wail to the stars? Here's Jeanette Cooperman. Shouldn't we all wail to the stars? The planet is burning, democracy is crumbling, the country's ripping apart, and it's all happening so fast. Historians offer examples of traumas we've survived. Civil wars, world wars, earthquakes, and plagues. The long view is supposed to shrink our fears for the future. But those people only had one cataclysm, I wail. We have 43. Toppled, we lie on hard ground, listening to daily accounts of all that is dying around us. The middle class, the great American experiment, liberalism, democracy, civility, the humanities, the nuclear family, widespread economic opportunity. Our capitalism is late stage. Species are vanishing. Plague is rampant and reinventing itself faster than we can or will react. Climate crisis has hit the point of no return. We could pick teams, I suppose, and agree to each concentrate on only one threat. Staying oblivious to the rest might keep us sane, but it would also make us even more vulnerable. For years, psychologists have been telling us that modern anxiety is an unfortunate hangover, an overreaction that dates back to our days fighting saber-toothed tigers and, no lie, giant predatory kangaroos. Now that sort of hypervigilance feels necessary again. If I were the one dying, I'd spend time forgiving, asking forgiveness, finishing the bucket list, wringing the last bit of sweetness out of the time I had left. But when entire ways of life are dying, my mind flips from one problem to the next until, exhausted and hopeless, I feel myself retreating like a monk or a housewife into my own four walls. In our domestic hobbit hole, I can busy myself making the grocery list, scrubbing rust from the shower stall, laughing at the dog's antics. Morally, my retreat is a self-centered cop-out. But in here, all is calm, and things still feel worth doing. 
At least, they do until I read that a heat wave released methane from prehistoric limestone in Siberia. The southeastern Amazon is emitting more carbon dioxide than it absorbs, so the lungs of the planet are compromised. On July 27th alone, the amount of ice that melted in Greenland could cover all of Florida in two inches of water. Meanwhile, the Colorado River, which supplies water to 40 million people, is drying up. Time to fix dinner. During lockdown, I wondered how we could be so cozy with people dying all around us. Now, the difference between our quiet, lamp-lit private life and the shadows outside our window is so pronounced it feels surreal. Are we safe or in danger? One of these realities must be an illusion, but which? We are learning to move in and out of doom. I'm Jeanette Cooperman, and I'm staff writer for The Common Reader, a journal of the essay at Washington University. I was not kidding when I said it changes six times a day. I move in and out of it, or at least the temptation happens because I'll hear something that's alarming, read some kind of news that seems dire, and I'm panic starts to rise, and then I do something normal, hang out with friends, play with the dog, and I feel like everything is fine. It's as though we're holding two opposite futures in our heads at once. And slowly, I'm learning to make my peace with that, not with the dire future necessarily, but at least with the need to acknowledge its possibility. Our species decides it is doomed quite often. Botticelli was sure the world would end in 1504. Christopher Columbus said 1656. Jim Jones thought it would end in nuclear disaster in 1967, then ended it for 909 people in 1978. Nostradamus held out for 1999. The rapture was scheduled for 2011. The Mayan calendar pinned the world's end to December 2012. What luxury to have a definite date. Then I could plan, or, or stop planning, or hide in a monastery, as they did in the Dark Ages. Our era is halogen bright, surveilled, stripped of refuge. We know too much to rest easy, not enough to make a difference. Words like uncertain, unpredictable, volatile, unforeseen, these are our adjectives. And humans don't do uncertainty well. In a December 2020 survey by the Census Bureau, 42% of people reported symptoms of anxiety or its partner, depression, almost quadrupled the percentage in 2019. And anxiety about the future is contagious. Once we start scrolling for doom, we find it and we share it. Or we stock up on canned goods. Bradley Garrett, the author of Bunker, Building for the End Times, writes about the architecture of dread, describing a 15-story geoscraper that can be locked down at a moment's notice, and has a sniper post, an on-site armory, a prison cell for unwanted visitors. This is the everybody-for-themselves strain of prepping. It is profoundly selfish, giving up on prevention or mitigation or cooperation or community. 
But there's another strain, one that is practical and often generous. I talked to a reasonable, well-educated prepper, call him David, who first became nervous half a century ago when he realized he was surrounded by nuclear power plants and nobody could tell him what the emergency plans were. Now he carries firefighting equipment and a stop-the-bleed kit in his truck. I ask him if people like me are just in denial about the dangers that await us. Well, I think people are in denial about a lot of things, David says, amused. And people have a lot of other things to worry about. But if you just buy a little food at a time or a shortwave receiver, it doesn't have to be expensive. I do think people need to be more self-reliant. But you don't have to get overwhelmed. I suddenly get the feeling he is pacing himself with me, like maybe there's a manual out there about how to slowly introduce newbies to prepping. He has the wrong student. I can't even get the Heimlich maneuver right. David is the kind of guy people like me ought to hang out with. And there it is, what I just said, the blithe naivete that's driving the others deeper into their isolated enclaves with their ballistic panels and their submarine batteries. They are Aesop's ants. They know full well that the grasshoppers who frolicked while the world was ending will be knocking at their barricaded doors asking for soup. I will not blame them if they shoot me. I have made my choice. You're listening to St. Louis on the Air. Jeanette Cooperman is reading her essay, Not with a Whimper, but with a Bang. It was published late last month in The Common Reader, a journal of the essay at Washington University. And in addition to having Jeanette read for us, we asked her to reflect on this piece. Well, I worked on it for about a month. Uh, the research was actually a consolation. You know, reading other people trying to make sense of all this helped. Uh, and weirdly, it came together pretty easily, which is unusual. And I think that's probably because I've been moving in and out of doom for a year and a half. So it was familiar ground. It was more cathartic than anything else. It wasn't the usual struggle. History does not repeat itself in a boring monotone, but it spirals back over the same ground, the same kinds of feelings and experiences. And yes, this is unprecedented, but I also think we tend toward this kind of adolescent sense that no one has ever gone through what we're going through, that we are special and we must despair because no one's ever suffered this much. Uh, that is so not true. We may be less stoic, I mean, my husband has been muttering for a year and a half now that this country would never have survived the Blitz. But people have been here before. Some folks, though, want the world to end. Neo-Nazis love the idea of societal collapse. Fundamentalist Christians thrill to the rapture. For people who hate their lives now, going off the grid sounds as carefree as sleepaway camp. They think they'll enter this self-enclosed Boy Scout world they've prepared, a place where everything they need is tightly stored and each day pre-planned, and emerge as a superior version of themselves, freed from a culture they despise. Garrett writes that the orderly, planned space of the bunker is the antithesis of pointless acceleration and accumulation. I close my eyes and try to feel that desire, that sweet anxiety Kierkegaard talked about, 
the way he associated dread with existential freedom and that fizzy sense that anything is possible. No, I like our old farmhouse way better than a bunker, and I'd far rather repair this world than start over. Aware that my answer is too glib, I sit with it a little longer. Let the prospect sink in. Imagine it. All this misery, all these mistakes, could dissolve like a sandcastle. History itself wiped clean. We would kick the last soft mounds aside and stand on firm, wet sand, seeing one another fresh and whole, all of us new again, our skin shining. Could we be redeemed? by which I mean granted enough innocence to try again, if only. The wealthy version of survival is not the least bit communal. It is a medieval castle gone underground, a gated community that's now hermetically sealed. Even those who go off-grid with more ideology than money tend to isolate with their own kind. We would not be starting over in freedom, anything short of total destruction, and we'd bring our baggage with us. Part of my apocalyptic panic is feeling that there are so many people I can no longer talk to. I want to say, can no longer reason with, but that tips my hand. They are just as sure that I'm the one who's not using my head. A flutter of panic rises when I hit these impasses, followed by so much weight on my chest it could signal a heart attack. It is a heart attack of sorts. All this emotion has no place good to go. The cheerful old agree-to-disagree no longer feels civilized. Instead, it feels ominous. So far, the only way I've been able to manage civility is to stop discussing politics altogether. Just a few years ago, I could listen calmly to my friends' fierce rants or quirky theories. Now their ideas seem dangerous because they mesh with larger movements that are destabilizing the world, blocking public health measures, creating hysteria. The stakes feel too high, like we've been losing all night at the craps table, and the next land of the dice will either ruin or redeem us. I pinch the roll of middle-aged comfort at my belly and set bare feet on warm hardwood. I don't feel precarious. Zombie and alien invasions strike me as unlikely, so does a full-out civil war. I fully expect to live a few more decades and the United States will probably muddle along that long, too. Yet I breathe in more doom every day. You have to choose to be hopeful. When I was young and single, it took me a while to realize that love is not a fairy tale, it's a choice. Well, hope is a choice too, and it takes even more courage than cynicism does. So that's where I think we all need to land. At least I hope so. <laughs> we posit the end of the world because our world is ending, and we cannot yet imagine what will replace it. We've reached the end of our grand illusions. America isn't special after all. This country is as vulnerable to demagoguery, injustice, and poverty as any other. Growth cannot be infinite. Global warming is more than a cycle. We are all sailing into the unknown. 
On the other hand, so what if the American experiment ends, or we have to move to higher ground, or an asteroid lands in the middle of lunch? Maybe we take our tiny lives too seriously. By succumbing to dread, we make fear a self-fulfilling prophecy. Instead of ending our wasteful, lazy, polluting, beef-eating ways and figuring out how to talk to one another, we just give up. Watch something dumb on Netflix, order a bamboo shirt, fiddle while the earth burns. There's no real escape, though. Evidence mounts up, and we work one another into a frenzy over it. Six times an hour, I swing between alarm and resignation. My husband and I email each other news links with subject lines like, we're screwed. What we can do, by sheer force of will, is force our minds to stay large. Accept the need to stay informed, even when it makes us feel helpless. Get used to shuttling between future dangers and present solace. It's not so surreal, I tell myself. It's just like going to work, dealing with a pile of emergencies, then coming home and relaxing. If I toughen up a bit, I can continue to absorb dire news instead of deciding that things can't possibly be this bad, there must be a conspiracy. Instead of spending our time trying to predict the world's end, we need to take in new information every day, brush our teeth with it, readjust our internal model of the world as we go. The psychology prof I discussed this with offers what's meant to be a soothing reminder. The minute you climb into a car, you're living with uncertainty. Reminders of everyday danger rarely calm me. But what he's trying to say is that a lot of uncertainty we just ignore. That, though, is the problem. We cannot, in conscience, ignore some of it and the media will not let us ignore the rest. This might as well be the war of the worlds, with the Martians invading all over again every morning. Our brains have a loose purchase on reality to start with. They trade in patterns and repetition. The more often we imagine apocalypse, the likelier it will feel. And that was St. Louis journalist Jeanette Cooperman, who writes for The Common Reader at Washington University. You can read Jeanette's full essay, not with a whimper, but with a bang, at commonreader.wustle.edu. And that audio piece was recorded and mixed by Evie Hemphill. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. 
Details at ChooseWood.com.